contracting for the climate. You're listening to Outlook, one of the commercial construction and international arbitration podcast series brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hi, everyone. I'm Ruth Keating, and I'm joined by Camilla Terhar at 39 Essex Chambers. And today we're speaking with Becky Anderson from the Chancery Lane Project. Today we're going to be discussing contracting for the climate. Becky, who we're joined with, is the Director of Engagement at the Chancery Lane Project. She got her MBA in legal practice and trained as a solicitor at Bird and Bird. And then she spent 14 years in law working first as a commercial contract solicitor and then as a senior editor at Practical Law before moving to the Chancery Lane Project. So Becky is perfectly placed to discuss today's podcast with us about contracting for the climate. For those I'd imagine very few listeners who haven't yet heard of the Chancery Lane Project, the Chancery Lane Project is a collaborative initiative of international legal and industry professionals. And the vision is a world where every contract enables solutions to climate change. The project has been very busy and it's already developed 120 model contract clauses that hopefully Becky might touch off today. And these can be incorporated into law firm precedents and commercial agreements. So Camilla, I know that you and I have had a lot of discussions around this ourselves and we have some burning questions for Becky and I think you're going to kick us off with some of those. Yes, I am. Becky, it's lovely to have you here. Becky, you've said previously that every lawyer is a climate lawyer, whether they know it or not. And we know that Chancery Lane Project has 120 model clauses. What kinds of contracts can these clauses typically go into? Well, firstly, thank you very much for inviting me on. It's lovely to be here. And secondly, to your question, honestly, I don't think there's a contract you couldn't put one of these clauses in. We have, as you say, 120 clauses and they really range from employment clauses, construction, finance. But then we also have, I suppose, what you call generic clauses. So we have a cooler plate section instead of a boilerplate section. There are arbitration protocols where you can look for a green arbitration. So any contract that has an arbitration clause in it can look to be doing a green arbitration. We have recitals clauses, which would go at the front of a document and would say the parties to this document acknowledge the Paris Agreement and we've both set a net zero target of X. So I think really, as I've been fond of saying in the past, all of human activity these days generates carbon. The vast majority of that human activity has a contract at it somewhere. If, even if you just go into Tesco's and buy a tin of baked beans, there's probably 15, 20 contracts to create that tin of baked beans and put it in your shopping basket. Every single one of these creates carbon. So every single contract is an opportunity to take the carbon out. Gosh, that's fascinating. But what do you say to someone who says, these clauses just don't apply to me or my industry. I think I would say two things. The first thing I would say is that our clauses are provided as a starting point. And if you don't think it perfectly fits your industry, then amend it, make it your own, because your industry is generating carbon, because all industries do. So use those fantastic skills that you have as a lawyer to amend the precedent and make it work for you. And we fully expect all of our clauses actually to be amended. I, I don't really anticipate many of our clauses going in unamended. And I say that as someone who was a commercial solicitor, you know, that I would often pick up clauses and I would tweak them and amend them. So that's a pretty standard thing, I think, for us in our industry. I think the other thing I would say to people is it is very easy when you are sitting at your desk dealing with all of the emails that are kind of flying at you every day to not stop and think about the wider impacts of your work, to not stop and think 
okay, well, I'm not in the fossil fuel industry. I just do advertising contracts or I do farming contracts for people who grow beans, that sort of thing. What I would encourage those lawyers to do, and I know this is hard because everybody is so busy and so under a crunch most of the time these days, is to say, actually, there almost certainly is carbon here. And if there isn't carbon here, say you deal with employment contracts, well, is there anything in those employment contracts where you could be putting in requirements for education on climate for staff? If you deal with employment tribunals, are you looking at green protocols for employment tribunals to perhaps reduce paper in them? And I would say that when you sit down and really look at it, that because the way that legal activity works in this country, and indeed, indeed globally, everybody's practice will have an element of climate hidden in it somewhere. And some of it is very front and centre. And some of it actually has huge carbon implications, but isn't quite so obvious. So I would just encourage everybody to spend, I don't know, just an hour sitting and really thinking about where the carbon is in their day jobs. So Becky, what I find so interesting about what you've just said there, and also the work of the Chancery Lane Project, is one, this idea that there's no contract these can't go into. And I love that. No excuses for our listeners or anyone else. And the second thing that I like is that you're inviting people to think consciously about the work they're doing. And even if they're not in an industry that's squarely focused in, let's say, fossil fuels, thinking about the impact of your work. One point that comes to mind when I think about that is, let's say I was talking to a client. It's all very well and good for me to think as the lawyer, I really think these clauses should go in they're exciting, they're workable, they're important. Can you think of any arguments either you've deployed or people at the Chancery Lane Project have deployed to clients to say, we know you really care about your contract, we know you really care about this project, but we think this clause should go in? Absolutely. I think that we are in a really unique position in climate for the first time in my life, I think, and I've been interested in climate for a very long time, but in the last few years we've become very keenly aware of the fact that climate is impacting the business's bottom line. And we're in a really unique position now that that previously that wasn't the case. And now we're in a situation where the climate is costing people money and a lot of money in a lot of cases. And so I think there's kind of a lot of different arguments that you can use depending on the client. The first thing that I would always do is go onto my client's website and look up what climate commitments they have publicly made. Because then the first thing you can do as a trusted advisor, because I know that all lawyers want to be trusted advisors, is go to your client and say, look, I see you have set a really ambitious target here, a really ambitious climate target. What are your plans for making that a reality? Had you thought about making sure it goes into your contracts? Because if it's not in your contracts, then it's not going to be prioritised by your value chain. That is the crux of what we're trying to get to here in the Chancery Lane Project, is taking those voluntary pledges and voluntary goals and voluntary targets and turning them into something which is legally enforceable under contractual law. So that would be the first thing is saying, not only is this an amazing opportunity for you to make sure your climate targets happen, because there is a contractual mechanism backing up, making sure that they happen. I mean, you wouldn't leave your profit margin to a a gentleman's agreement or a voluntary target. So should you really be doing that with climate? But also, I think that there's a really important defence mechanism here. We are seeing a huge rise in climate litigation. 
And in the last couple of years, we're starting to see a rise in climate litigation, if anybody's read the Grantham report recently, against corporates. Previously, climate litigation was primarily against nation states. We're now seeing some very high profile cases being brought against corporates. Obviously, there's the Shell case. I think the Peru case, which is coming out, is against a cement manufacturer. And I think that as we start with that fossil fuel company Shell moving into high carbon industries such as cement. I think that it's going to start working its way down the chain, particularly after that incredibly game changing Shell decision in May 2021 in the Dutch courts. And so a way to talk to your clients is to say, look, there is a real risk here, a real litigation risk, particularly if you are a high carbon intensity client, that you are going to be on somebody's hit list for a piece of litigation. And a really good way to show that you are serious about making sure your carbon targets are met is by putting them in a contract and giving it the force of law. So I think that that's the first thing that I would say. Becky, I mean, I'm totally persuaded. Do a <laughs> silent applause there. And I totally agree with you. I think what I love about that argument is that it isn't relying on the goodwill of companies and businesses. And we can't do that. I think you're totally right. The Grantham Institute research is really interesting. Loads of other examples as well we could talk about, we might touch on later, but things like the first greenwashing claim being taken against KLM for airlines. We obviously had the decision, I think two weeks ago now, from the ASA on HSBC's ads that they had in London. Obviously, that took a year for that decision to come out, but I think it really reflects well what you're saying, which is that there is no industry which is untouched by this. And what I love about the idea of putting in contract clauses is unlike litigation that's reactive, a contract clause can be a little bit of an insurance policy of things that are coming down the line. So it's making people think about, don't think about your climate risk as it is now. Think about your climate risk as it might be in five 10 years time. And I think that's going to be a very different world for everyone. Related to that, Becky, so we've had all the kind of positives of these clauses. Thinking about the roadblocks that people can have to implementation, thinking about them. So one you mentioned earlier, and I think it's totally right, is even though you're a huge advocate of these clauses, of course, you wouldn't suggest they go into a contract unamended. That You know, that's a potential roadblock is looking at a clause if you thought you're not going to amend it. Can you think of any other roadblocks that people should be mindful of if they're thinking about implementing these clauses? I think cost is one. Some of these clauses will attract a green premium. And the reason is, is because doing things in a less carbon intensive way costs more. And we're not going to get to the Paris Agreement without spending some money to get there. And that's going to be pretty painful. I think that we are getting to a stage, I hope that we're getting to a stage, I suppose, where the cost of not doing it is going to rapidly become more expensive than the cost of doing it. But I think that there are some roadblocks there, some cultural blocks there, some mindset blocks there. I think that a lot of people aren't even tracking how much climate is costing them. So of course, how could you compare that and potentially express a green premium as a return on investment or a return on saved extra costs if you don't know what extra costs you're currently incurring anyway? So I think that there's a mindset shift needed there. I think that there's an education piece. A lot of people know that climate is important. And I think that we've seen, at least in the UK, when we have surveys of the general population, the vast majority of the population think it's important and think something should be done. But when you dig into that further, they don't know what is the most high impact thing to do. So I think that a lot of people, just ordinary people, who of course are the people who work in these companies and who may be the people delivering these contracts, could stand to have you know a piece of education around saying 
It's really distressing to see a picture of a turtle with a plastic straw in its nose, but burning plastic straws does not get you to Paris. And things like that, you know, there's a lot of conversation about plastic waste which needs to be had, but it's not quite the same as the carbon conversation. And we need to help people understand there's difference between the two. And I also think that another blocker is how we measure carbon for companies. I think that we're in a situation at the moment where we don't have a standard way of measuring actual emissions. We don't have a very good way necessarily comparing like for like. So you have a lot of companies who have set a carbon target or a net zero target or a Paris aligned target. And now they're in a situation where maybe they're asking their suppliers, maybe through their contract clauses, I hope through their contract clauses to help them meet that target. But then when they're saying to their suppliers, okay, well, now you've got to track your carbon and report on that you could have a situation where an SME is being asked by 15 different corporates to track their carbon in 15 subtly different ways with 15 subtly different underlying formulas with 15 different reporting dates. And that becomes an incredible burden. Now, I don't think any of these are blockers to action. I think they are challenges that we can rise to. But certainly what I hear when I go out and talk to people is, I don't want to pay any more money for this. And nobody can track the carbon in a way which is meaningful. That's very interesting. You've mentioned the big carbon polluters. We'd love to talk to you about the construction industry specifically. The construction industry is one of the world's largest polluters. There are sort of various figures, but it's estimated between 30 and 50% of carbon dioxide emissions come from the construction sector. We know you used to work in the legal construction world. I did. Are there any particular model clauses you would flag to our listeners as being particularly useful for the construction industry? Absolutely. I often talk about setting the clauses up for success. And what I mean by that is that you can take one of our dark green high ambition clauses, which is Paris aligned. For example, Owen's clause, all the clauses are named after children important in the lives of the people who drafted them. So Owen's clause sets a carbon footprint for a contract. That carbon footprint has to reduce year on year. And if the supplier or the subcontractor can't make it work, then they have to either be terminated. There's a means for doing that in the clause because of these clauses really have to have teeth. They have to have bite to them. Hopefully carrots and sticks, but you know, we all respond very well to sticks in the legal world. Or you have to pay an amount of money in liquidated damages for offsets to offset the carbon you miss the target by. Now, you can take that clause and you could absolutely apply that to a construction context and you could put it into a contract. But if you haven't done any preparatory work, it's really not going to work. People are just going to fail. And that is problematic for a number of reasons. Firstly, the carbon didn't come out. Secondly, you might now have to redo a procurement process. And thirdly, if you don't do anything, if you just let the situation slide and you don't enforce, yes, of course, you've probably got a boilerplate clause to cover that if you want to come back later. But you're setting an expectation with your subcontractors or your supply chains that actually, although you've put a clause in, you're not really interested in enforcing it and it's not really that important to you. So what you need to do is put in clauses which are meaningful and stack the deck so that those clauses succeed and that carbon eventually comes out. So some of the ways that I think that you can do that in the construction industry, we have a fantastic self-assessment questionnaire for suppliers, which you could easily turn into a due diligence questionnaire or something like that, which will help you and your suppliers really dig into the detail of what is it you need to be done on this contract? Can the supplier do it? I think that that's a really important first step. I think that tendering has an incredibly interesting place in this process. I know that we all tender on price and solution. 
I would like to see us tender on price, solution and carbon footprint for a deal and then take that tendered carbon footprint and put it into the contract in the same way that you just did for the price and the solution. Uh, and I think that self-assessment questionnaires, which we have in abundance on our website, is a great first step to doing that. We have a clause which is there to help you benchmark project greenhouse gas emissions. How well are you doing against other construction projects of the same type in the same industry? I think that's a really good one. I think that there's an awful lot of space and potential money saving, actually, in the construction industry using circular economy principles. One of the things that I remember when I did some construction work was that it's a standard clause, a standard clause in construction contracts that goods will be of new and merchantable quality. And I hate that clause. I hate it with passion because that means if you have got goods which could be perfectly well reused, perhaps you even bought excess on a previous job, you can't now use them on another job. If you've got materials which, if recycled properly, would have exactly the same quality specification as something new, you can't use it on a job, even if it would benefit you to do so. So I suppose I'm saying before you even look at our clauses, look at the unintended consequences, the unintended climate impacts of clauses in your contract which could come out. And I think circular economy clauses, of which we've got two, I believe, Artme's clause and Alex's clause, if you want to search for them on our website, this is absolutely a place where we can see savings instead of green premiums. There's an awful lot that can be done there. And I think as well, obviously, we need to be cognizant of the fact that the construction industry is dominated by three standard form contracts. I know that X29 has just come out from the NEC, which I think is absolutely worth looking at. And we have a clause for FIDIC relating to net zero obligations. So if there's anybody out there using FIDIC as a standard form, then have a look at that clause. That's great, Becky. I love the idea of you saying that, you know, it needs to be a tender based on carbon as well as these traditional outputs we have like price and solution. But I also think what's really important is that you're speaking the language of clients. So things like the circular economy are so attractive because there are great, not as many as we would like, but some inspiring engineering projects across the world and construction projects where they're, let's say, demolishing a stadium or a large building and then trying to reclaim some of those materials. And what's so good about that argument, again, is that I think it's attractive to clients because you're saying there's actually a financial benefit for you doing this. As well as, and this is something I, I wanted to ask you about, we mentioned earlier the idea of green premiums. And it's something that clients sometimes get quite annoyed about. They think they're having to shoulder the net zero target. There are a couple of benefits. I think one of them is circular economy. We've spoken about some other things like the PR aspects of this and how important it is that if you're putting out a statement saying, you're going to be net zero by 2030 or 2050. You really need to have something backing that up and increasingly shareholders and all sorts will be asking for that. The final one I'm thinking about is insurance premiums as well. So we've finally seen in the last few years, this climate risk entering into the insurance risk index where it used to not be in the top 10 and now it is. Can you think of any other arguments, Becky, because you've been very persuasive on this that we can have in our arsenal to say, this isn't a green premium, and there's actually huge financial benefits for you as a company to include these clauses financially. Absolutely. I think in some ways I would like to refocus that conversation around risk. I know that people talk a lot about opportunity and there is a huge amount of opportunity in this space because regulation is coming. It's perhaps not coming as fast as we would like or as we need, but it is coming. And if you are behind the curve, then you could find yourself very rapidly having to make all of these changes in a way which could be less cost effective for you than if you do them earlier in a more measured and considered way. 
So that'd be the first thing I would say. Get ahead of this before it gets ahead of you. I think the other thing I would say, particularly around risk and opportunity, is that because we are expecting to see a large change in legislation over the next few years, and over the next few years, we are going to expect to see more physical changes to the world. Britain had its first 40 degree summer this year. The trajectory is that that is not going to be unusual. We're going to see more floods, more wildfires. And I went to a really interesting talk at the Net Zero Festival in September, where the fantastic lady at Bupa was saying, the business world is going to look incredibly different in seven years. Seven years, that takes us up to 2030, which is the deadline that the IPCC has given for where we need to get most of our major work done. What is your business going to look like in that 2030 world? If you are not on top of this stuff now, where is the place for you? What is your strategy? What is your survival strategy as a business if you are not going to be doing these things? And I think that you're absolutely right about insurance. We have all, but especially large corporates, have been paying increased insurance premiums for probably the last 10 years to pay for extreme weather events. That's only going to increase. I think that we're going to find situations where there will be places in the world which become and already are starting to become uninsurable. I really hope that's not where all of your primary warehouses are for your supply chain logistics. You know, and I think that's what I would encourage people to say. There's a, there is a really fundamental risk here and we're just starting to get the first taste of it. If you are a business which relies very heavily on supply chain logistics and warehousing, have you mapped your critical warehouses against a plan of what the sea level rise and the flood risk is going to be in the next 10 years? Because if you haven't, then when you start having warehousing underwater, which massively upsets your supply chain and hugely cuts into your bottom line, that is a risk that you could have covered off and should be covering off now. And obviously, I'm kind of talking a little bit wider than the green premium here, but I honestly think that if people started to financially calculate the cost of climate change and the projected cost of climate change in the next 10 years for their businesses, we would be having a very different conversation because a little bit of green premium now to help make sure that that situation is not as bad as it could be in the future, I think is hugely worth it. The other thing that I wanted to mention, and you touched on shareholders, and I do think we are seeing a lot of shareholder activism in this area, which I always love that phrase, because when I was a young lawyer, shareholder activism meant Greenpeace has bought a share for a pound, and they're going to turn up to your shareholders meeting and cause a disruption. And now what shareholder activism means is that huge institutional shareholders are now so worried about businesses' lack of climate plans that they are getting involved in litigation to try and force that situation. So it's, it's really interesting for me to kind of see that transition. I think that if you sit on a board, you can expect to hear more from your shareholders about this because they are worried about the risks to them now and the risks to their investments. I think that you're going to see a lot more non-exec directors asking very pointy questions that you're going to want to have answers to, because otherwise it's going to get difficult and embarrassing. And I think we are now seeing an explosion in green loans, sustainably linked loans. And I think the banks are going to get more and more discerning about where they are willing to put their money. And you'll have access to better funds, I think, over the next few years if you are doing the transition work. So I think that the whole of the economy is now making it more attractive despite the green premium instead of less which is the situation we were in perhaps five years ago. This has been so interesting. Do you have any tips for lawyers who want to adopt and advocate for these clauses? 
I do. And it's all about timings. I've mentioned earlier that we have this deadline of 2030 that's been set by the IPCC, which is really when we have to have made the majority of carbon emission cuts before that carbon is so heavily baked in that we can't avoid the big rises with the horrendous consequences that come attached to them. And I know there's a lot of corporates out there who have set 2030 net zero targets. I think Sky is one that springs to mind as having set a a net zero target of 2030. And what I would say is that that's nearly, where are we now? So that's just over seven years away. One of the founders of the Chancery Lane project has calculated that that is 83 board meetings which is a very small number to get anything done in a board meeting. I would also like lawyers to focus their minds on that seven years number because every single contract that you as a lawyer are sorting out today, every contract you're working on right now, I would like you to take the length of that contract. And if you have not put any climate clauses into that contract, I want you to take the length of that contract off your seven years. If you're negotiating a five-year contract today or a five plus two or five plus three, then minimum, you have now left the business that you're creating that contract for only two years left in the context of the work that that contract covers to decarbonise it. If you're negotiating a 10-year contract, you just bust straight through your seven years and it's not achievable. Because that's the thing, isn't it? Once a contract is signed, yes, we can try and renegotiate them. But realistically, that takes so much work, so much energy, and is often isn't even a starting place. So my kind of my plea to lawyers is this is not a tomorrow issue. It's not a seven years in the future issue. It's a today issue because every contract that you are working on today is cutting that timeline right down. Thank you, Becky. I thought that was just so interesting as a conversation and so important. And I think you've really drawn out for our listeners both the importance of these clauses and also the practical points. So as you say, this isn't a tomorrow issue, it's a today issue. So if you're listening to this, we'd encourage you maybe to take that hour that Becky asked you to earlier to sit at your desk, staring blankly into space and think about these issues and think about how they're going to inform your contracts going forward. So thanks, Becky, so much. For those who want to hear more about the Chancery Lane project, they, of course, have a website where they've explained these model clauses and you can hear more about the organisation, and that's chancerylaneproject.org. And thanks to all of our listeners for listening to this podcast. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.